following is a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more information on Shore or our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. I want to try and play a little word association with you and try not to preempt me by looking in your bulletins. But I want to, if I was looking for a book of the Bible that was filled with political intrigue and action and epic adventure, where would you send me? Nowhere. Okay, that's good. There's nowhere in the Bible that has action and intrigue. Go on, someone. A book of the Bible with lots of action. Esther, there you go. Very good. Acts, very good. All right, that's good. Got a few others. Genesis, maybe. Um, Okay, so now if I'm looking for a story of a conversion to faith, like a dramatic conversion to faith, where would you send me? Acts, yeah, that's an obvious one, isn't it? All right, and what if I wanted to look up some great, uh, very detailed and powerful prophecies of the coming Messiah? Where would you send me? Isaiah? Yeah, fair enough. Very good. So, I'm going to ignore that, sir, because you preempted me. Now, I'm here to contend, along with this fine gentleman here, that there is a book that actually should sit on top of all three of those lists, and is often on none of them, and that is the book of Daniel. My favorite book in the whole Bible, it is absolutely fantastic, and I think it would make a great movie. If you thought Noah was an epic movie, man, just wait until Ridley Scott gets his hands on this bad boy. This is going to be awesome. It's got everything that you would want. I mean, when we think of Daniel, we think of what? We think of a lion's den, and we think of a fiery furnace, and they're really good stories. But they're just like scenes in a great epic movie that spans like decades and tells a story of this hero, Daniel, who influences not one, but three of the most powerful kings in the known world at the time. And it starts off with, with this, this great big battle that would put uh, Saving Private Ryan and Gladiator to shame. This truly epic battle as Nebuchadnezzar, this great and powerful king, comes down and besieges Jerusalem. And he takes control of it and he hauls all of these people away. He raids the temple and he takes all of this uh, treasure back to Babylon. And in the book of Daniel doesn't mention this, but later on he's going to come back twice, actually, and he's going to eventually just raise the whole place to the ground. And he's going to burn the place brutal, violent beginning to this movie. You know, just what everyone wants. So it's got this, this great... And then on the, on the trek back to Babylon, we're introduced to our main character, Daniel. We'll, we'll, we'll cast him as like a, a Ryan Gosling type. <laughs> You're interested now, aren't you? <laughs> don't worry, by the end of it, he's going to look more like Anthony Hopkins, so don't worry about it. But um, we've got this character, this young man who is brought back to, to Babylon. And he becomes through God's divine power, through his interactions, and through God saving him, he rises to the very top, and he becomes the second most powerful man in the whole kingdom. Much like the story of Joseph in Genesis. There's a lot of parallels there. And then we get this interaction between Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. One of the great conversion stories in the whole Bible. I mean, this was a guy, I mean, Paul did some terrible stuff. I get that. You know, he was trying to take out the Christians and all of that, arrest them and put them in prison. Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Israel, okay? He put, burned the whole place to the ground. And yet God goes after him. And through Daniel's interactions with him, he comes to a point by the end of chapter 4 
where he's like, God is the God of the universe. That's powerful stuff. And then you get to the prophecies in the second half of the book. Some of the most intricate and detailed historical prophecies pointing to the arrival of Jesus. Not so much the who of what, who Jesus was, although there is some of that in there as well, but the when is just absolutely incredible. Well, what interests me most about Daniel this morning is not the content, not actually what's in the book, but the overarching purpose, the why Daniel was written. So this morning, I don't want to go in and dissect. We're going to have a look at a couple of stories, but my purpose is not to dissect the whole book for you, but to go in and take in a step back and look at the overarching uh, theme, the overarching purpose of the book. So while Reuben's going to take, I don't know, what, six months to go through a book of the Bible, I'm going to take you through in one day. So, you know, that's value for money right there. And so I think the key to understanding why the book was written is to actually look at who the book was written to. Who would have been the people who first opened the book of Daniel, unrolled the scroll, and read its words? Now, the, the scholars aren't actually clear on this, but I believe the evidence suggests that while the events of Daniel took place during the exile, while the Israelites were out in Babylon, I think the first people who would have read it would have been the ones who came back to Israel after the exile was finished. If you have a look at some of the um, prophecies that are given to Daniel, he's told, seal up these visions. They're not for now, they're for later. So I'm not sure he would have gone around talking to everybody during the exile. In fact, he may not have mentioned anything to anyone. So I believe the first people who would have looked at it would have been the ones who have returned back to Israel. They've finished the exile, and now they're back home. So I want to have a look at what it would have been like for these people, because I believe that their worlds would have been turned upside down. I don't think they're happy to be home. Think about this. First of all, they are violently and brutally attacked by the Babylonians. I mean, I can't overemphasize... I mean, you look at Daniel. Daniel chapter 1, it says... In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. That's it. That's all we get. That's, that's the whole narrative there. And I can't overemphasize how passive that is compared to what it would have been like for those living in it. I don't think Daniel needs to mention it because the people were there. They remember. They don't need a reminder. But from our perspective, the brutality of what it would have been like to have your city your precious city, besieged, surrounded by this huge army, attacked, destroyed, and then hauled away. I mean, these are supposed to be God's people, right? We were supposed to be protected by God, and yet, boom. Now, yeah, this has been prophesied, it's been foretold, but still, it's just hard to fathom, it's hard to swallow. And then they're torn away from the promised land. And they're looking back as they're being hauled away in chains, and there's their promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, the land God gave them, the land that they've been living in for over a thousand years, the land where God himself lived. I mean, he had a nice piece of real estate on top of the hill overlooking the city. Nice little house there. This is where God was, and they were being taken away from him. And most importantly, this was the place. The promised land was where God was supposed to fulfill all of the promises that he made to Abraham back in the day. This is where it was supposed to happen, and now they're being torn away from it. 
and there was no rescue either. I mean, this is, you know, back in, in the time of the judges when they were attacked, this happened before, but God would raise up a judge to come and rescue them, and there's no judge. In fact, the prophets of the day say, get used to it. Settle in, build a house, have a family, because you know what? You're not going anywhere. And then their best and brightest young men are forced into service to the king, to a tyrannical king, your enemy, the one whose values and morals and very way of life are opposite to yours. And you know what? Instead of these young men going in, just like the great escape, trying to hinder and undermine and do anything that they can to bring down the leadership of Babylon, they seem to be helping him. They seem to be doing what they can to extend the kingdom of Babylon. The governors, satraps, rulers, this is just not right. They're traitors to the cause. And then finally, after 70 long years, they return to Israel, but they're not returned as victors. I mean, God was supposed to come down in a blaze of glory and wipe away the enemy. He was supposed to lead the captives out and, and charge like a, like a proud general, leaving behind a wake of, of carnage and sweet revenge. You know, just like the Exodus. That's the way it was supposed to happen. But it didn't. In fact, when they came back, they came back with an armed escort of the very enemy they were trying to escape. They were rebuilding their walls and their temple with money from the enemy bank accounts. And they looked up at their flagpole, and it wasn't their flag flying there. It was someone else. They didn't own their nation. It didn't belong to them anymore. In fact, it belonged to a pagan, unbelieving nation. In fact, a little side note of history. Apart from a small little uh, rebellion between the Old and New Testaments, Israel doesn't own its own land until 1949. 2,500 years later. If you want a more modern parallel to what these guys and what have been going through, try and envision yourself in 1941 in Britain. And Hitler's forces turn their attention to you and the Battle of Britain starts, except it doesn't go quite as swimmingly as our history books say. Hitler overruns the, uh, the uh, Royal Air Force and invades, burning the place to the ground and hauling everyone back to Germany. Then imagine them only being allowed to return home like last year. 70 years captive in Germany. They're finally allowed to be brought home, but they're under German guard. And they come home and the swastika is still flying on their flagpole. Can you imagine what that would be like? Can you imagine what it would be like for us in New Zealand as being part of the great Nazi empire? Can you imagine saying Heil Hitler every morning? Can you imagine your children being taken off to Hitler youth camps? This is not the way that this is supposed to go. How would you view God's sovereignty in a situation like that? How would you view the the triumph of good over evil in that situation? So you can forgive the Israelites living at the time of the return from exile as thinking that something had gone horribly wrong. 
The plan has not come together the way it was supposed to. The wheels have fallen off the wagon completely. This is not how an all-powerful God was supposed to act. So what was going on here? Had he lost a step? Had he finally come across an enemy he couldn't conquer? Or did he simply just not care anymore? And it is these people, lost in their hopelessness and their fear, wondering if God had truly abandoned them, they're the ones who first opened the scroll of Daniel. What do they read? For six chapters, they read story after story, of not just political intrigue and heroism, but a clear and powerful account of how God had not abandoned the people in exile, but he was working there in the midst of it all, working through them to influence the king and by extension, create an environment that is much more favorable to his people in exile. They would have read about how the men they thought were traitors were actually heroes of God, protected by him and used to to influence these kings. And they would have read about how even the most tyrannical and diabolical leader, this, this tyrannical man that they would have ever have known, can be reached by God and be forgiven by God. And they would have seen the true heart of God, not to punish his enemies, but to reconcile him to himself. But most importantly, they would have found in the last six chapters proof that God is in absolute control, not just of the present, but of the future as well. In an act of divine cartography, God sets out, he draws out five detailed maps. One of them is in chapter 2, but the rest are in chapters 7 through 12. These de- this detailed maps showing everything that is going to happen from that point right up until the time that Jesus walks in the door. All of the suffering that they were going to go through, everything that was bad that was going to happen, he wrote down. Why? So they would know that he knows. He's in control. And it's going to end. I want to start, I want to have a look at a couple of these real quick. Uh, There's two, the first two um, dreams or prophecies laying out these maps, laying out history. Uh, They're absolutely fantastic and full of uh, really rich symbolism. So I'm going to read them really, really quickly. The first one is in Daniel chapter 2. This happens right at the beginning of Daniel's ministry. Uh, He's actually training up. He hasn't really entered service yet. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has a dream. And Daniel interprets the dream for him. He, He tells him what it is and he interprets it. And you can read up on the screen here. Daniel chapter 2, he says, Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on the feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away, 
without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. Daniel is um, good at buttering up the leaders that he's talking to. You may notice this. Probably why they like him so much. (laughs) Next after you, another kingdom will arise, inferior to yours, of course. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. As iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet of the toes, feet and the toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with the baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Okay, so we have this magnificent um, statue, which you'll see up on the screen here. And there you go. Look at that. Eh? Looks impressive. And so this is the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has, and Daniel says it's the nations that are to follow. This is history playing out. Well, move on to uh, chapter 7. We get another vision. This time Daniel himself has a dream, and this is about 25 years later, something like that. Daniel says, In my vision at night I looked... And there before me were four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth. Between its teeth, it was told, go up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back, it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the other former beasts, and it had ten horns. And skipping down to verse 13, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And then in verse 17 and 18, Daniel's given the interpretation. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. Yes, 
forever and ever. All right, so we've got the statue and we've got the four beasts and they are parallel to each other. Each part of the statue uh, corresponding to an animal representing nations that are, are about to arise. Um, <clears throat> and I really like these. This is kind of like my favorite part of the whole Bible because I just think the symbology and the way that they describe these nations is so picture perfect for what happens in, in the future history that is going to happen that it's just it's absolutely amazing. So anyway, we start with a lion, the head of gold. Um, as Daniel himself says, this represents the kingdom of Babylon. And Babylon is known throughout history as being one of the most affluent and impressive and glorious kingdoms. Nebuchadnezzar himself is known as a builder. He, he built the, the hanging gardens of Babylon and, and many other great things. And gold was everywhere. Okay, I mean, they, they just had so much gold. And it was a very majestic and important kingdom, which is, makes sense that he's given a head of gold. And the animals are a lion and an eagle, two of the most majestic animals that we know of. In fact, we still use those as symbols of majesty and importance. I mean, you got the Americans like to use the bald eagle as their national animal. I mean, uh, C.S. Lewis used uh, Aslan as a lion. You know, you got that, uh, that eagle guy in the Muppets, you know. So all really important, you know, prominent people. And so, um, and then of course you've got the, this, this fun little bit about the wings being ripped off and, and turning into a, a human with a human mind, which is a great little reference to Daniel chapter 4, which I'm not going to get into. Go home, read it. Great story. So anyway, we've got this, but I mean, to be honest, Daniel could have looked around and he could have come up with that stuff himself. It's not really that impressive. This was during the time of Babylon, okay? So it's not really foretelling anything. We move on. The next one is the arms and chest of silver and the bear with one leg up in the air. Now, this represents the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. Silver, of course, is less impressive than gold, but is more durable. Now, the Medes and the Persians were not so outwardly glorious as the Babylonians. They didn't really go for that sort of thing. Instead, what they wanted to do is they wanted to hoard money. That was their thing. They wanted to hoard wealth. And you will never guess the metal that they used as their standard of value. Silver, exactly. So they are the arms and chests of silver. And then you've got this bear with this arm up on, this uh, leg up on one side, which represents an imbalance of power. And historically, we know that the Persians were the stronger of the two allies in this uh, Medo-Persian empire, which is probably why we just call them Persians most of the time. So we've got this... Um, Great symbology here. My next is the favorite, though. We have the, uh, the torso of bronze and this weird-looking leopard with four heads and four wings. Uh, now, of course, um, it's important to realize at this point that while Persia may have been on the radar uh, during the time of the Babylonians, they did take over Babylon, and Daniel was alive when that happened. The Greeks came out of nowhere. No one saw it coming. It was like the Spanish Inquisition. No one was expecting it, you know. And so this, um, they came up, this, this man, Alexander the Great, one of the greatest military leaders in history, comes up with 35,000 men in his army and uses that to stake out a kingdom from Greece all the way clear across to India, one of the biggest kingdoms in its time. And he did it in 11 years. I mean, that is unprecedentedly fast, even by today's standards. You just can't cover that kind of ground 
and have that kind of conquest in that time. And so it is interesting to me that the animal they chose is a leopard with four wings. What sort of characteristic would you give to a cat like that with four wings? He's fast, isn't he? He's quick. He moves. So I found that very, very interesting. And the four heads? Well, our good friend Alex was so busy conquering nations that he forgot to settle down, buy a house, and have a family. And so when he died prematurely, he had no heir. And so his kingdom was divided up amongst his generals. Want to guess how many generals he had? Four. Very, very powerful symbology. Oh, and by the way, they used bronze weaponry, but ah, that's probably a coincidence. So now we get to the uh, fourth kingdom. Now, this is the one where Daniel spends the most amount of time. This is the most important kingdom. It is the kingdom of iron. Iron, of course, this makes sense. It's less impressive than the other metals, but way stronger, gets the job done. But what's interesting to me is that, I mean, it's legs of iron mixed partly with clay, but man, he goes on and on about that mixed partly with clay, didn't he? He spends a lot of time talking about this kingdom. And then over in the beast, apparently there's not a single animal on earth that Daniel would have known that would have captured the truly terrifying nature of this kingdom. So he makes one up. I have Godzilla in my picture here. So here we've got Godzilla coming in. He's absolutely trashing the place. He's destroying everything. This is a kingdom unlike anything else that they've ever experienced. And that's Rome. Rome is a kingdom unlike anything before, and I don't think anything since. No one dominated the world like they did. And so then it's right in the middle of this most terrifying chapter in history. Right when the suffering of God's people seems to hit a fever pitch. That the kingdom of God comes in. This rock, cut out, not by human hands, smashes the statue to pieces. This is the climax of both of the dreams, and I think the the purpose of the whole book of Daniel. Right in the middle, when everything seems to be the worst, God steps in. And I like this rock, not cut out of human hands, because it contrasts so beautifully with this statue clearly built with human hands. And so you've got the statue representing the very might and power of human, human armies, human nations, crushing, destroying everything. And yet this rock comes in and pulverizes it so completely, so utterly that all that's left is dust. Have you ever smashed iron to dust? And so when the people are watching the Roman army come pouring into their nation and this invincible horde of soldiers. And then I think of the rock, this asteroid that comes in and just pulverizes everything into dust that's swept away. And I think God is intentionally bringing out this contrast between the power of what, God, or what man can do to you and what God has in his hands. So no matter how hard it's getting, no matter how much you're being oppressed, no matter how much the nations are coming at you, God is so much more powerful in them that it's just kind of funny. It's just kind of sad for them. And then over in Daniel chapter 7, we get a different image. We get this introduction of this character, an obscure figure, one that's going to become very familiar, especially as Reuben starts heading into the book of John. It is Jesus' favorite nickname for himself, the Son of Man. And the Son of Man is given power over everything. 
He's given power over everyone. All of the nations worship him. All of the beasts that just had been described, all of the nations that have been oppressing God's people, they turn into kittens and puppies and little pets for him to pat. And they all worship him. They all bow down to him. And sovereign, his sovereignty is, is complete over them. So when Jesus goes around and starts saying things like, I am the son of man, he's not just doing the whole rock diva talking the third person thing. He is intentionally referring himself back to this image, this scene in Daniel chapter 7. He is the one anointed by the ancient of days, and he is bringing the kingdom of God with him. On the flip side, I do understand why the disciples then are a little confused when Jesus says the Son of Man is going to be handed over to the authorities and killed. That doesn't make sense given this. So we should probably give them a little bit of a break. <laughs> this doesn't make sense in the way that they would understand the sovereignty and power of God. But of course, God is changing the way that we look at that. So both of these messages have the same, both of these dreams, sorry, have the same message. A message that God is calling out loud and clear to the Israelites as they've come back from Israel, from Babylon. He says, I am not the weakling or uncaring deity that you think that I am. I haven't lost a step. I haven't let the situation get out of my hands. I know exactly what you've been going through, and I know exactly what you still have to go through. But there is an end. I am going to do something about it. My plan is in place. See? Read the map. Do the math. Lay it all out. You'll know exactly when it's coming. I hold the power of the universe in my hand and I will unleash it to protect my people. God will rise victorious. So how does that affect us? 2,500 years later, New Zealand, all the way across the world. Nice history, right? Does it have anything to do with us? Well, I think it's fair to say that the way the Israelites felt is kind of the way we feel sometimes. And I'm not talking about, you know, life is difficult. We, life is always difficult. You know, things go wrong and, and, and we have tough days. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about sometimes it just feels like the wheels have come off. Sometimes it just feels like God has, I don't know, stepped out of the office for five minutes or so and everything has just gone wrong. Like he's the mum who's, who's, who's gone away for the weekend and now the house is on fire, you know? Everything is going wrong. It just doesn't seem right. I mean, is, is, is God not quite as powerful as we thought? Or does he simply just not care anymore? And so the words of Daniel echo out through the centuries and he shouts at us, I'm always in control. Always. I've proven it to you. I showed you what was going to happen right up until the time that Jesus came. And did it come true? Was it right? Did I guess correctly? Yeah. Everything. Exactly down to the last dot. And now we have the proof of his plan in Jesus. God's kingdom come. The rock cut out from the mountain has crushed the statue. The Son of Man has arrived to tame the beasts, and the kingdom of God is here in all of its glory. 
right? I mean, right? I look at that candle and I'm thinking maybe not so much. Right? I mean, if this is the kingdom of God in all its glory, maybe it's not all that glorious. Maybe I still feel a little bit like the way that the Israelites feel when they came back from, from Babylon. That the power of God was not quite as powerful as I thought it might be. That the end of sin and destruction and, and evil hasn't really happened. I look around the world and I see the world hemorrhaging with evil. Sin, death, destruction, lies, deceit, all over the place. I see our lives filled with dark corners and burning candles. And I'm thinking, is this it? I can tell you what, I bet the early Christians thought that way too. After Jesus had come, he did his, man, he was amazing. He came, he did his thing on the cross, he went back to heaven. He sent out his disciples, they started churches, there were miracles left, right, and center. It was awesome to behold. Churches were started, the world was coming to know Jesus. And he said, Jesus was coming back, be ready. And so they were ready, and then they were ready, and then uh, just kind of stalled a little bit, maybe, you know? And, and this, this great, powerful Godzilla kingdom, Rome, was supposed to be tamed, and now it seems to be worse than before. And now they're targeting Christians and feeding them to lions and forcing them to worship false gods or, or ostracize them from the community. Did something go wrong? Did God not set his alarm clock? He, he hasn't come back yet? What's going on? And so our great divine cartographer sits down, pulls out his pen, draws another map. You might be familiar with it. Last book of your Bible, book of Revelation. Not quite as detailed, I will say. Not so much, this is going to happen, then this is going to happen, then this is going to happen. No determined line of where it's going to end, but the message is the same. The message is loud and clear. I am not the weak or uncaring deity that you thought I was. I haven't lost a step. I haven't let the situation get out of my hands. I know exactly what you're going through. I know exactly what that candle means. And I know what still is yet to come. No, it's not good, but I know it. I hold the power of the world, the universe in my hands, and I'm going to use it. It is going to end. There is going to come a time where I, the Son of Man, will come on the clouds of glory and I will come to my people with an outstretched arm and I'll come with a balled up fist. And there will be justice. And pain will end. Candles will blow out. So just hold on until then. And when things get low, Look at my map. Read it. Study it. Take hope in it. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you that you gave us not one but two maps to prove to us that you are in control when everything seems out of control, when the wagon seems to have come apart and, and we just feel like your plan is, is lost that we feel like you don't care, 
We may still feel that way, Lord, you know that. You've provided us with plenty of psalms to prove that we still have emotions and feelings of abandonment. But Lord, thank you that we know, we know that it's not, not lost. You are not lost. You're not confused. You're not surprised. You're not scratching your head wondering, how am I going to get out of this one? This is everything that you knew was going to happen. And though we don't understand and we don't like it, we can get pretty angry at you for letting some stuff happen. I know I am. But Lord, we cannot deny that you know what's going to happen. You have the power and you will end it one day. So as our Bibles say, Lord, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We're waiting. In your name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.